Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 81, The Sacred Cod. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss the Sacred Cod, longtime Massachusetts icon and overseer of the State House of Representatives. The mighty cod holds great prominence in Massachusetts history, as cod fishing was the first industry practiced by Europeans in the region. Cod imagery appears on many early coins, stamps, corporate and government seals, and insignia. But before we talk about cod, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For this week's historic site, we're featuring the hub of the solar system, the Massachusetts State House. Before the current State House was completed in 1798, Massachusetts' seat of government was the old State House on Court Street. But having rid ourselves of the crown, a new home for our government representative of statehood was in order. Perhaps missing the memo about turning away from all things British, architect Charles Bullfinch made use of two existing buildings in London for the State House's design. William Chambers' Somerset House and James Wyatt's Pantheon. The building was completed at a cost of $133,000, more than five times the budget. The initial structure was the brick federal-style core, which has been expanded multiple times. It houses the Massachusetts General Court, the state legislature, and the offices of the governor. The building was built on land that had been owned by John Hancock, Massachusetts's first elected governor. The Masonic Cornerstone Ceremony took place on July 4, 1795, and was presided over by Paul Revere, Deputy Grand Master of the Massachusetts Grand Lodge. We found a description of some of the events that took place that day on the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website. On July 4, 1795, a grand procession led by Governor Samuel Adams, Grand Master of the Masonic Lodge Paul Revere, and Revolutionary War Colonel William Scully, followed by 15 white horses, one representing each state of the Union, drew the cornerstone from the Old South Meeting House through the streets of Boston to the top of Beacon Hill. Amidst an escort of fusiliers and a 15-gun salute that echoed across Boston Common, the cornerstone was set in place. During the ceremony, two sheets of lead with the corners flanged over was placed under the cornerstone, with 11 coins, one being a pine tree shilling dating back to 1652, a copper medal with George Washington's likeness, and a silver plate which may have been engraved by Paul Revere commemorating the election of the new state house. In 1855, work was being done on the foundation of the state house, and the time capsule was unearthed. The contents were cleaned, cataloged, and returned to their resting place in a newly built brass box along with new silver and copper coins dated 1851 to 1855. An impression of the state seal, then in use, assorted morning newspapers, two business cards, and additional script engraved on the reverse side of the original silver plate by then-Governor Henry J. Gardner and Grand Master of the Masonic Lodge Winslow Lewis. With the discovery of water penetration into the southeast corner of the basement, an investigation ensued and the time capsule was unearthed for the third time on December 11, 2014. The capsule, 
measuring five and a half by seven and a half by one and a half inches and weighing about 10 pounds, was taken by state police escort to the Museum of Fine Arts to be opened, examined, and conserved by Pamela Hatchfield, Robert P. and Carol T. Henderson, Head of Objects Conservation. The cornerstone was returned to its original place on Thursday, June 18, 2015. Items added to the cornerstone time capsule in 2015 were a new silver plate commemorating the occasion and a mint set of 2015 United States coins. Statehouse tours are conducted by the staff of the Tours and Government Education Division of the Secretary of the Commonwealth's Office and by volunteers well-versed in the history and architectural background of the Statehouse. The tours are given weekdays, year-round, from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. and are free of charge. The building is open from 8.45 a.m. to 5 p.m. The Massachusetts State House is closed on weekends and holidays. Tours last approximately 30 to 45 minutes and include an overview of the history and architecture of the state capitol. Visitors can see the House and Senate chambers, learn about the ladybug, our state insect, and of course the sacred cod. Reservations are required, and we'll post the info in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're highlighting World War I, Reflections at the Centennial, an event hosted by the Center for the History of Medicine. Per the event website, the Center for the History of Medicine, in partnership with its co-sponsors, the Harvard Medical School Civilian Military Collaborative and the Ackerman Program on Medicine and Culture, is pleased to announce the upcoming event, World War I, Reflections at the Centennial, with speakers James A. Schaefer, Ph.D., and Jeffrey S. Resnick, Ph.D. James A. Schaefer, Associate Professor in the Department of History in the University of Houston, will present The Mobilization of American Medicine for the First World War, an examination of the causes and effects of the rapid recruitment of doctors, nurses, and other medical personnel, such as volunteer ambulance drivers, during the war. Drawing from Harvard University and other Boston-area examples, Professor Schaefer will measure the scope and scale of medical mobilization, explain the motivations for doctors, nurses, and medical personnel to mobilize, and explore the immediate effects of mobilization on the careers and lives of American doctors, nurses, and medical personnel. Jeffrey S. Resnick, Chief of the History of Medicine Division of the National Library of Medicine, will present A Prisoner of the Great War and His Songs in Captivity, an exploration of the period when Rudolf Helmut Zalter, the artist, writer, and nephew of the novelist John Galsworthy, was an internee in the Alexandra Palace Camp, North London, and Frith Hill, Surrey. Drawing on collections of the NLM, Imperial War Museum, and University of Birmingham, among other archives and libraries, Dr. Resnick will reveal how Zalter's experiences open a window onto the history of the Great War, both as Zalter experienced it and as he subsequently sought to forget it, like so many other surviving members of the generation of 1914. The event will be held on Wednesday, May 30th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at the Countway Library of Medicine, 10 Shattuck Street, Boston. We'll include the link to register in this week's show notes. Now, let's turn to our main topic. Poised high aloft in the old hall of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, riding serenely the sound waves of debate, unperturbed by the ebb and flow of enactment and repeal, or the desultory storms that vexed the nether depths of oratory, there is hung through immemorial years an ancient codfish, 
quaintly wrought in wood and painted to the life. Humble the subject and homely the design, yet this painted image bears on its tinny front a majesty greater than the dignity that art can lend to the graven gold or chiseled marble. The sphere it fills is vaster than that through which its prototype careened with all the myriad tribes of the great deep. The lessons that may be learned of it are nobler than any to be drawn from what is only beautiful. For this sedate and solitary fish is instinct with memories and prophecy, like an oracle. It swims symbolic in that wider sea, whose confines are the limits set to the activities of human thought. It typifies to the citizens of the commonwealth and the world the founding of a state. It commemorates democracy. It celebrates the rise of free institutions. It emphasizes progress. It epitomizes Massachusetts. So reads the opening paragraphs of A History of the Emblem of the Codfish in the Hall of the House of Representatives by Massachusetts General Court, House of Representatives Committee on the History and Emblem of the Codfish, compiled in 1895. It epitomizes Massachusetts, the report says. That's a bold statement, and honestly, it doesn't resonate with our 21st century identity as a dunks-loving, sports-ball-winning, coastal, elitist city. So we had to dig deep on this one. Cod was central to the founding and sustainability of European settlements in Massachusetts. In a 1932 graduate thesis by Marie Margaret McLaughlin entitled The Fishing Industry of Colonial Massachusetts, 1620-1660, the author describes its importance. The discovery of the advantages of winter fishing off the New England coast was directly responsible for the colonization here. We may justly say that neither pilgrims nor Puritans were the pioneers of American colonization. Neither the axe, the plow, nor the hoe led it to these shores. Neither the command of royalty nor the devices of chartered companies. It was the discovery of the winter fishery on its shores that led New England to civilization. It fed alike the churchmen and the strange emigrants who came with the romance of faith in their hearts, and the lex talionis in their souls, to persecute because they had been persecuted. The promoters of Massachusetts Bay Colony intended, she continues, to profit by the disastrous experiences of many of their kinsmen on these shores. In a letter of instructions to Governor Winthrop written from London in 1629, it was ordered that a storehouse be built for shipwrights and their provisions, and that a responsible person be selected to have the matter in his special charge. In that same year, salt and apparatus for fishing were sent here. Governor Winthrop took an active interest in the fisheries from the very beginning. The Reverend Francis Higginson has left a glowing account of the treasures of the sea as found in Massachusetts Bay. The abundance of sea fish are almost beyond believing, and sure I would scarce have believed it except as I had seen it with my own eyes. I saw great stores of whales and grampuses, and such abundance of mackerel that it would astonish one to behold. Likewise, codfish, in abundance on the coast, and in their season, are plentifully taken. There is a fish called bass, a most sweet and wholesome fish as I ever did eat. It is altogether as good as our fresh salmon, and the season of their coming was begun when we first came to New England in June, and so continued about three months' space. Of this fish, our fishers take many hundreds together, which I have seen lying on the shore, to my admiration. 
Yes, their nets ordinarily take more than they are able to haul to land, and for want of boats and men, they are constrained to let many go after they have taken them, and yet sometimes they fill two boats at a time with them. And besides bass, we take plenty of soots and thornbacks, and abundance of lobsters, and the least boy in the plantation may both catch and eat what he will of them. For my own part, I was soon cloyed of them. They were so great and fat and luscious. I have seen some myself that have weighed sixteen pounds, as they assure me. Also here is an abundance of herring, turbot, sturgeon, mussels, and oysters. Others have caught, at diverse times, so great lobsters as to have weighed twenty-five pounds. Exactly how this history translated to a sacred cod watching over our legislature is a little murky. Historians cannot agree on how many cods there have been and when the first one appeared. The Committee on the History of the Emblem of the Codfish wrote, "There is a dim tradition that in the primitive House of Assembly of the province, there hung a codfish which was the gift of Judge Samuel Sewell, a judge of the Salem witch trials, who died in 1729." But his published remains make no mention of this traditional fish, and it is difficult to imagine that a man of his loquacious verbosity would have omitted to chronicle his munificence. If it existed when the state house burned in 1747, this prehistoric creature of tradition doubtless went up in a whirl of smoke, which still clouds its history to the peering vision of the antiquarian. A second cod, or first, depending on your opinion, appeared sometime between 1748, when the state house was rebuilt, and 1773. But within a few years, the committee wrote, the second cod disappeared from the state house and was doubtless destroyed, for the closest historical research fails to shed any light upon the time, manner, or cause of its disappearance. Or to disclose any reference to it, whatever, mayhap some burly British trooper quartered in the improvised barracks of the old State House during the siege of Boston took umbrage at the spick and span elegance of the newly painted emblem of colonial independence and thrift. Such a one may have torn down the cherished symbol from the wall whence it had offered aid and comfort to the rebel patriots, with its assurance of the material wealth. Accessible in the embryonic state, and in spirit of vandalism so prevalent at that age, used it to replenish his evening campfire. The committee found good reason to believe that the missing fish was carved by one John Welch, a Boston patriot. The third cod was installed in 1784 after Representative John Rowe. Namesake of Rose Wharf and a leading spirit in the stirring scenes that led up to the famous Boston Tea Party, asked leave to hang up the representation of a codfish in the room where the house sit, as a memorial of the importance of the cod fishery to the welfare of this commonwealth, as had been usual formerly. And so the emblem was suspended in the old state house once again, and this cod, which Rowe may have underwritten personally, is the one extant today. On January eleventh, seventeen ninety-eight, the cod enjoyed a stately procession wrapped in an American flag for its journey from the old state house to the representatives' chamber in the recently completed new state house. It originally hung over the speaker's desk, and in the eighteen fifties, it was moved to the rear of the chamber. On January second, eighteen ninety-five, the house's last day of business before relocating to a new chamber in the same building, 
a question arose whether the cod would migrate to the new space. By now, the great fish had been in place for over a hundred years, but there wasn't much insight as to how and why it was originally installed. As such, a three-member committee on the history of the emblem of the codfish was tasked with uncovering its roots. The committee submitted a report after two months of research, and after much debate, the House ordered immediate removal of the ancient representation of a codfish from its present position in the chamber recently vacated by the House and to cause it to be suspended in this chamber. With great ceremony, the sacred cod was wrapped in an American flag again, placed on a bier, and escorted by the sergeant-at-arms to the new house chamber, where the assembled representatives rose in applause. After repainting by Walter M. Brackett, it was hung where it remains today, between the two sets of central columns and under the names Motley and Parkman above the chamber's clock. But that was not to be the Sacred Cod's last adventure. We'll let Universal Hub tell it. Late in the evening of April 26, 1933, a call came in to the State House press room. The Sacred Cod was gone. The reporter who took the call at first thought it was a joke, but he alerted security guards who checked the House of Representatives, and sure enough, the 4-foot, 11-inch pine carving of a cod which had overseen legislative affairs since 1784, was missing. As the Globe reported at the time, state detectives, Boston police, and state house guards combined in a frenzied but fruitless search for the emblem. Where the emblem hung were two wires, but no replica of the cod. According to the New York Times, which reckoned the cod's value to be something less than nothing, As an object of art, it's worthless. Massachusetts officials were shocked into a condition bordering on speechlessness by the theft. Some legislatures holding that it would be sacrilege to transact business without the emblem of the Commonwealth looking down upon them. Yet, the show must go on. House Speaker Saltonstall looked mournfully at the vacant place and then banged the gavel. The first act of the House fitted the occasion— it passed to be engrossed a bill allowing the cold storage of swordfish. That same day, Mayor Curley received a perplexing message. Tell the mayor that when the sacred cod is returned, it will be wrapped in the municipal flag now flying in front of City Hall. Try and catch us when we cop the flag. Lafayette Mulligan, we are here. Lafayette Mulligan is a reference to several hoaxes in the prior decade, including a letter from Mulligan written on behalf of Mayor Curley, presenting Edward, Prince of Wales, with a key to the city. A prank of this scale pointed in an obvious direction, the staff of the Harvard Lampoon, Harvard's monthly humor magazine. The Museum of Hoaxes lays out the plot. The Lampoon's plan of action had two prongs, diversion and frontal assault. The diversionary tactics went into effect first. They knew that the main obstacle between them and the successful completion of their task was not the Boston police, but rather a source closer to home, the Harvard Crimson, Harvard's daily newspaper. The staff of the Crimson and the Lampoon had long been fierce rivals, never missing an opportunity to take each other down a peg. The Lampoon knew that if given the chance, the Crimson would do everything in its power to sabotage the Lampoon's plans. Therefore, the Crimson could not be allowed to have any inkling of what was to happen. A diversion was needed to distract its attention, 
On Wednesday, April 26, 1933, editors from the Lampoon created a diversion by raiding the offices of the Crimson and kidnapping J.M. Boyd, a Crimson staff member. They spirited him away to a secret location off campus. This infuriated the other Crimson staffers, who promptly focused all their attention on finding Boyd. While the Crimson was thus occupied, the frontal assault on the Cod began. The plan of attack was disarmingly simple. Three Lampoon staffers walked into the State House armed with a pair of clippers and a flower box. They waited until a discreet moment when no tourists were around. Then they quickly clipped the wires holding up the fish, tucked it away in their flower box, and disappeared. Meanwhile, rumors and speculation about the whereabouts of the cod spread wildly. For two days, the police raced around the city following wild, red herring leads. But almost immediately, suspicion focused on the Lampoon staff. Witnesses at the State House at the time of the theft reported seeing a group of young men hanging around decked out in white saddle sport shoes, in the style of Harvard students. In addition, one of the young men was said to have been visibly drunk. Someone else remembered a young man walking away carrying a long box from which lilies protruded, presumably the box containing the cod. Who else could the culprits be but the staff of the Lampoon, the police figured? The Lampoon, when confronted with this accusation, issued a not-quite-straight-faced denial, while simultaneously congratulating whoever had done it. They didn't flinch even when the state authorities pointed out that the punishment for disfiguring a monument was a year and a half imprisonment, a $100 fine, or both. On Friday the 28th, Charles Apted, superintendent of caretakers at Harvard, received a tip. If he wanted the cod, he should go to the West Roxbury Parkway and follow a car without license plates. He spotted the car on Lake Street and pursued it along the parkway until he overtook the vehicle and forced it to a stop. Two men hopped out and gave him the cod before fleeing the scene. Apted promptly returned the cod to the police, and it was placed in the State House a mere 50 hours after its theft, this time six inches higher to discourage future pranksters. The cod napping had reached national media, and a month later, the Los Angeles Times published a poem by James J. Montague, The Pilfered Cod. From Winthrop Beach to Bunker Hill, from Cambridge to Revere. The voice of happiness was still, one heard no note of cheer. A pallor whitened every face, all eyes were red and swollen. A dreadful crime had taken place, the codfish had been stolen. The fish that symbolized a trade, which in the days of old, the shores of old New England made a strand of shining gold. The fish that millions came to view with ardent admiration, the fish whose fame has echoed to the corners of the nation. When first I set my roving feet upon Bostonian sod, I hastened blithely up the street to view the sacred cod. And in its dull and glassy eyes, the instant of our meeting, I fancied that I saw arise a glance of cordial greeting. Today there is an end of grief, no more the skies loom black. A chastened and repentant thief has brought the codfish back. No Stygian gloom now broods around, no heart with woe is freighted. Bostonian pulses leap and bound, the cod is reinstated. Just a few short years later in 1937, 
Representative John B. Wensler offered a facetious proposal that the sacred cod be immediately removed from the House chamber and a greyhound substituted in its place, as the 1937 legislature has shown itself to be completely under the power of the dog track operators. Charles Apted, now forever bonded with the cod, wrote to Wensler. As one who is and was very much interested in preserving the cod's dignity, and furthermore, having held it in my arms, I must respectfully ask a favor, that is, if the greyhound be substituted, that I be presented with the cod, in order that it may be preserved for the future of young Americans. Unsurprisingly, the proposal failed. On November 14th, 1968, Using a stepladder this time, students at the new Boston campus of the University of Massachusetts took the sacred cod in protest of perceived legislative indifference to their school. However, it was heavier and larger than anticipated, and the cod was found a few days later in a little-used statehouse closet. To learn more about the sacred cod, Check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 081. We'll have photos of the sacred cod as well as its sister fish, the holy mackerel, in the Senate chamber. We'll link to Marie Margaret McLaughlin's master's thesis on the fishing industry and to the report on the history of the emblem of the codfish by the House Committee on the History of the Emblem of the Codfish. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about a daring swimsuit that shocked the city of Boston. Boston.